6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. You can't read anywhere in the Bible without discovering that God is on the side of the poor. He was born in a borrowed stable. He had to borrow loaves and fishes from a little boy to feed the crowd. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head, in Matthew 8, verse 20. He had to borrow a coin to illustrate a truth. Remember the coin and the fish and all that? He borrowed a donkey to present himself to Jerusalem. He borrowed a room to celebrate Passover. And he died on a borrowed cross. It belonged to Barabbas, not to him. They put him in a borrowed tomb. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Always interests me when Israel left Egypt. They removed Joseph from his tomb to take him to the land. And on the anniversary of that, later, they took him out of Joseph's tomb. Again, there's an interesting parallel, but anyway, move on. And we could go through a whole series of verses. I'll spare you that this evening. Uh, and, and James is going to hit hard on the rich in chapter 5, so I'll, I'll leave that up. But let's move to verse, verse 6. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Isaiah, in chapter 5, lists a series of woes. One of these is the one I want to focus on, but it might be useful. Just bear with me. Let's pop over to Isaiah 5. People ask me, I often get a question when I have a Q&A when we travel, where is the United States in prophecy? And I don't happen to be one of these that buy into some of these conjectures that, that are prominent around the United States in prophecy. I say, Isaiah 5. Oh, really? And they quickly turn here. Sure. Yeah, it is. I think so. Um, let's start maybe about verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until the night, until wine inflame them, and goes on. And that I won't get into alcohol statistics. I'll spare you all that right now. Verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Interesting verse, because it doesn't just talk about being sinners. It's parading your sin. I can't help but visualize as I read that the, these, the, you know, the homosexual parades and what have you that are encouraged by our administration and all the rest. And verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How interesting it is that one characteristic of our present educational system, and it's been more, true for more than a, generator, a generation, is this whole idea that there is no real truth. Your truth is fine for you. Relativism. They don't even know what's right and wrong. They don't even know what's good and bad. They deny their existence. 
Verse 21, Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The elitists that know best for what's, what's best for you. A federal government that feels they can run your family better than you can. And woe unto them, that, verse 22, that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle drunk drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. In other words, injustice. Injustice. It's interesting how we look, let's stand back and look at our country. We pluck our candidates from the flies of the political marketplace. We allow a corrupt press to manufacture political correctness to replace truth and fabricating views of convenience in order to match their hidden agendas. Our politicians review the polls every day to determine what they believe. And, of course, we have anger replacing patriotism. Frustration is tearing away at every fabric of our divisive society. All the professionals have plotted to separate we no longer have Americans. We have black and white, rich and poor, men and women, you name it. But they divide. There's no longer a sense of national, shared national uh, values. We have a growing mass of parasites without leadership. We have lawyers without justice, stewards without accountability, elected representatives who ignore their commitment to our Constitution. We have legislators that vote on proposals they haven't even read. And, of course, our security forces also, as a result, have become the mercenaries of the globalists, prostituted to the egos of our politicians. Our media presents a perspective that masks the deterioration of our national security and the inevitable financial upheaval that's on our horizon. I have mentioned this before. I have a dear friend by the name of Larry Abrams. Larry Abraham writes a letter called The Insider's Report, a number of very respected books on, America, on patriotism and so forth. He was asked by some students a few years ago, what is the biggest problem in the United States? He started to answer, but then he, he uh, ended up giving a very considered answer that he put in a letter. There are a lot of problems in the United States, but the one that really hit him between the eyes, that caused him to move his entire operation outside the United States, ultimately, that's the lack of justice. How interesting. Of all the things, all the complaints, all the ills you could list... That's the most provocative. He left the United States a few years ago. He, he was the ninth newsletter writer to leave, out, leave our shores. Money Magazine indicated about 250,000 Americans left the States in that year. But his reasons are interesting. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. He says, my people, Larry speaking, quoting him, my people came to America to live as free men, and I had to leave it for the same reason. The greatest single U.S. problem is the increasing loss of the concept of justice within the hearts and minds of the American people. And once lost, that concept is hardly ever recovered. Justice is no longer the base on which America conducts its affairs. And Clinton and Rodham did not cause this condition. They are the sad consequences of it, as are the legions of bureaucrats at the FTC, IRS, SEC, HHS, and the jurors at the Rodney King, Reginald Denny, and Menendez trials as are the killing of Mrs. Weaver and the baby by the FBI, the torching of Waco by the BATF and the drive-by shootings, the intellectual insanity of uh, political correctness, the institutionalizing of perverts as the core constituency of the Democratic Party, the politics of envy, which sponsors an entire body of law that amounts to what the French philosopher Frederick Bastiat called legal plunder. The maze of law that guards this plunder has grown so vast it's now impossible to determine what's legal and what's not. He says, my commitment has always been, as yours should be, not to a plot of ground, but to a moral philosophy. 
As long as the USA was the finest example of that philosophy, as long as it struggled justly to live by its high ideals, I would fight to preserve and protect it. And I did so. But when my country becomes, as it has, the primary purveyor and financier of all that I abhor, and without any reasonable sign of reversing itself, then I must choose a different venue from which to carry on the war begun by Burke and Madison and Jefferson, John Adams, Hamilton, and Jay. Now this, of course, was written prior to. He did not have the benefit of the O.J. Simpson verdict or the Oklahoma City bombing or the murder of Vince Foster or the TWA 800 cover-up. The Nazis in Germany, when they knocked the door down in the middle of the night, took the head of the household to prison, were not doing anything illegally. They always operate under the color of law. Well, let's move on. Back to verse 7. Do they... <laughs> James, do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? So if you're mistreating the poor, or if you're tolerating injustice, you know what you're doing? You're blaspheming the name of Christ. I think far more effective than apologetics, our lives and ministries are the best defense of the inspiration and authority of the Word of God. Do you believe in the Word of God? In its inspiration authority? Then your most strongest defense of the Word of God is not by apologetics or clever arguments or quoting things. It's your life. It's your life. That's what James is trying to get across. And by the way, you and I should realize if we're Christians, we're going to be increasingly politically incorrect. And there may be some among us that will have the unspeakable privilege of uh, giving our very lives in testimony to that worthy name by which we are called. Verse 8, if we fulfill the royal law, interesting term, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as self, ye do well. It's interesting, James drew on the Old Testament, he's very Jewish, Leviticus 19.18, what you and I call the golden rule. And he calls it the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you have any doubt about who your neighbor is, Luke 10 gives you the fame story of the Good Samaritan. We all remember the story of the Good Samaritan. We should remember what the real point of the story was. It was to demonstrate to us who our neighbor is. It's not the guy next door. It could be a guy laying in the street near death that needs help. And uh, James used an interesting expression here. He says the royal law. Why does he call it the royal law? Well, I don't know, but there's three reasons I can suggest. One is it was given by our king. Second commandment. I should love it. It's the royal law, the one given by our king. Another way, reason you might call it the royal law is because it rules over the other laws. If you do that, you've got a handful done. The other way to look at it is obeying it makes you a king. Hatred makes you a slave. Loving your neighbor makes you a king. And love, of course, is not... We get confused because we use that, num, that, that label so frequently. I love my wife. I also love peanut butter. There's no connection. See, the word love we use so casually. Love is not an emotion. It's an act of will. Love is a commitment. Now, Christian love means treating others as God has treated me. A little different twist there, but critical. Verse 9. James continues, But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. And of course, what he's talking about here is partiality. What he's talking about here is discrimination. He's using the word that you and I have been called discrimination. I have to confess, I'm partial. There's some of the people here in the room that I'm much more partial to than others. <laughs> okay? 
And I don't think that's really what he's talking about. But he's really talking about what you, in our vocabulary we'd probably call discrimination. That's a whole other thing. Verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, is guilty of all. That's a verse that a lot of people memorize. Very key point. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And let me give you a very simple lesson in grammar here. Sort of. Suspend a man over the edge of a, pre- a precipice by a chain of ten links. How many of these need to snap and break in order to plunge him into the abyss? See, that's the model. Okay? Does that get across the idea? That's okay, the other nine are doing fine. <laughs> it's like the guy that jumped off the Empire State Building. 110 floors up there. As he's passing the 50th floor, someone says, how's it going? He says, fine so far. (laughs) You and I stand before God as lawbreakers. We don't have to count how many of those links we broke. You only have to break one of them. And you are in need of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, because James continues, For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill... Thou art become a transgressor of the law. And I might add, and vice versa. There's, I don't know that there's any murderers in this audience. But without meaning offense to anyone, I'd be not surprised at all. And I'm not asking for a show of hands. <laughs> that uh, adultery is probably a little more common in our community than murder. I think if James was writing to us personally, he might switch those two around. But that's okay. And I guess his whole point, of course, is how hopeless you and I are if um, we are attempting to be justified on the grounds of our own obedience. Well, all I want is justice. Not me. I don't want justice. Trust me. I don't want justice. There's very few mistakes I've missed. I've made most of them. No, no, I want mercy. mercy. I'll take mercy over justice. Any show of hands? Huh? Okay, all right, good, okay. Verse 12, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Jesus says it another way in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, how many love Jesus Christ? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. He says, if you love me, what do you want you to do? Keep my commandments. We, we just don't hear that enough, I don't think, in our evangelical community. We take the decision for Christ, every, every eye closed, every head bowed, you know, make your decision, come down the sawdust trail. And I'm not knocking that, but we treat that as a climax. You know, five, ten people, twenty, whatever the number is, they come down in front and they get a little Bible and some prayer, and that's great. And the audience applause, and isn't that great? We pray for them, it's wonderful. As if, oh boy, now that's done. Wrong. That's a beginning. I won't ask for a show of hands. I usually do. I say, you know, how many of you have been saved? I get the hands. And then my question is, okay, what have you done with it? What's happened since? As a minimum, there needs to be a life change. If there's not a life change, something still needs to happen. It's interesting that every, in the Bible, in the New Testament, every orthodox statement of faith ends with a statement about the return of Jesus Christ in the final judgment. Check it out. Every orthodox statement of faith, major statement of faith, has following it an allusion, at least, to the return of Christ and the final judgment. Now, a lot of Christians obviously uh, uh, 
differ on the details of his return. But I know of no competent Christians that have any doubt about the certainty of his return and the judgment. You and I have an appointment. And uh, it's interesting that both Jesus and Paul, Jesus in five, John 5.24, and Paul in Romans 8.1, assure us that Christians will never be judged for their sins, but that our works will be judged and rewarded. In Romans 14, verses 10 through 13, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, and I'll just let you jot those down if you're going to be diligent and look them up. Jesus in John 5.24 and Paul in Romans 8.1 give us that assurance. We won't be judged for our sins, but we will be uh, judged and rewarded uh, for our works. And uh, Romans 14, verses 10 through 13, and 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Our words will be judged, James uh, told us in verse 3. And also in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, I say unto you that every idle work that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Our words will be judged. Boy, that's going to be embarrassing for me. Boy, I shot my mouth off in some stupid situations. And not just when I'm tired and so forth, that too. It disturbs me to realize I'm accountable for those. There's a bunch. I talk a lot. (laughs) Our deeds will be judged. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. And the scripture does say that God remembers our sins no more. He says that in Jeremiah 31.24 and it's recorded in Hebrews 10.17. We've all heard that. God remembers our sins no more. But they still affect our character and our works. I was told of a father that every time a son did something wrong, he'd drive a nail into the dining room table. And when the son apologized, asked forgiveness, the father would pull that nail out of the dining room table. It's done. But the marks were still there. God may forgive us of our sins, and he may remember them no more. That still can leave venereal disease on the part of the violator. It can be, you know, you can, you can fill in the blanks. The judicial aspect can be taken care of. That's the important one. doesn't mean that we don't have physical or emotional or whatever scar tissue from whatever the history is. In verse 13, James goes on, he says, He shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. See, our attitudes are also going to be, we talk about words, we talk about deeds, our attitudes are going to be judged. See, mercy and compassion are not competitors. Uh, They both come from God. Matthew 18 deals with that. And the real thing that James is going to hammer away in a variety of different ways is to ask the question, is our walk consistent with our profession of faith? That's his key point throughout this whole epistle. It's not the desire of God to deal harshly with anyone. He is always ready to forgive when sin is acknowledged, recognized, owned, but then confessed. Now, see, as objects of mercy ourselves, uh, we're called upon, of course, to show mercy and compassion on others no matter how lowly their condition might be. In doing some background here, I came across a story I'd like to share with you. The story took place in London, where a very great preacher, a very fine young man by the name of Caesar Milan, who was invited one evening to a very large and prominent home where a, a musical was to be presented. And on the program was a uh, young lady 
uh, who thrilled the audience with her singing and her playing. And when she finished, this young preacher threaded his way through the crowd and, and uh, was gathered around her. And he finally came to her and said, Young lady, when you were singing, I sat there and thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefit, benefited if you would dedicate yourself and your talents to the Lord. But, he added, you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on Scarlet Street. But I'm glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse you from all sin if you will come to Him. I'm not sure that's the best approach, but anyway. In a very haughty manner, she turned her head aside and said to him, You are very insulting, sir. And she started to walk away, and, and then he said, Lady, I did not mean any offense, but I pray that the Spirit of God will convict you. Well, they all went home, and that night this young woman could not sleep. So he may not have been tactful, he might have been more skillful, but gee, my word shall not return void, I guess is the moral of this part of it. At 2 o'clock in the morning, she got up by the side of her bed, and she took Christ as her Savior. And then she, her name was uh, Charlotte Elliott, sat down and wrote the words of a hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. And in the last verse, as, Just as I am, thou wilt receive, and wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relief. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Hallelujah is right. This, of course, is the basis that we all have to come to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm touched by some of these old hymns. You know, there's a, there's a trend in, in our churches today to go to the modern music. And I'm not knocking it, except I think it was Dave Hunt that first called my attention to this. And since then, it's bo- it never bothered me until he pointed it out. Now it bothers me every time I'm in a group very often. Have you ever noticed how some of the new songs are absolutely devoid of any theology? You know? I love God, I love God, I love God 37 times and, you know, whatever. And I'm being a little unfair. In contrast to some of the great hymns, my heart is warm because as I travel in the Calvaries and others where there's a, a, is a, history, you know, a style of more, the newer music, they are introducing here and there some of the old hymns. Sometimes a little modernized, that's fine, but the point is, you know, you can't prove on this. I really wonder how many people made their decision for Christ from the draw of the Holy Spirit through hymns like this one. The main point tonight is our behavior reflects what we really believe. And we could talk a lot about statements of faith, we can quote scripture, we can split hairs on doctrine, and that's fine, but what people really see and what the Lord is watching for are changed lives. That's what James is all talking about. And many people misunderstand the thrust of his epistle. He's not saying that you're saved by works. But you're saved by a faith that demonstrates works. If you say you have faith and don't have fruits of that in your life, there's something still missing. There's some bridge still to cross. There's something still that needs to be dealt with. So the question is, is God really gracious? Is God really gracious? Is He really true? Does He have integrity? Does He keep His word? Is God really Really? Going to judge us? Our conduct, our conduct before the world will reveal our real convictions about this. 
if we really believe God is gracious, we have an obligation to manifest that graciousness. And if, we, if God really is one of integrity and truth, then why do we conduct ourselves in such compromised ways? And if he's really going to judge us, why isn't that the most compelling priority or yardstick in our lives? Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we just thank you that you are gracious, that you are merciful. We also thank you, Father, for your initiatives because we're all here right now by your initiative. It's your caring. It's your diligence, not ours, that has brought us together. And it's your spirit that has put this desire in our hearts, this desire to seek you, Father, and this desire to reflect you, Father. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you particularly for this epistle of James. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just use it in our lives. Not that we might earn anything other than maybe a smile on your face, Father. That we might just be more responsive to your will in our lives. That we might be more faithful witnesses to your character. Oh, Father, we just do pray that you would take us and use us as we come to you just as we are, without one plea, except that your Son, Jesus Christ, shed his blood, that we might have this access to you, that we might be in your forever family. We pray, Father, that you would also illuminate for each of us those things in our lives each of us, that need attention, that need prayer, that need resolve. Help us, Father, to grow in our effectiveness as a witness for you and of Jesus Christ, because we do indeed commit ourselves into your hands. Indeed, in his name, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.